check check this out check this out okay what if in fact the town was big enough for the both of them <laughs> i made sam watch I'm the sparks so mad. I'm I made so mad <laughs> welcome to another episode of money for nothing the podcast about music and capitalism sam is complaining because i made him watch the sparks documentary yeah this is this is the one where the gang watched the documentary about sparks all four hours and 15 <laughs> minutes it was two hours it, it was too long no, dude, dude, dude. it was two hours and 25 minutes but check this out there's two sparks brothers so really you gotta multiply it by two which makes four hours and 50 minutes of spark because spark. each of spark yeah yeah because you got you got right you gotta double it that's how i think the sparks math works out all right, all right, all right. So for you, for those of you that don't know who Sparks... Blissfully unaware. <laughs> blissfully unaware. Wow, okay. Blissfully unaware of who Sparks wait, 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 is. Am I being too negative? I, no, you're just giving your opinion. That's fine. Like, <laughs> for those of you who are unaware of who Sparks is, they're the best band that never made it, or how is how they're framed. And I think this documentary framed it, uh, which is debatable. But no, they it, it's, are... Wait, hold on. It's not debatable. <laughs> They are not the best band that ever made it. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Th- this is where we, this is where we take a hard left and talk about Tad. No, just kidding. Okay. Dude, it's uh, flaming <laughs> groovy. No. Um, Sparks are though a highly influential duo that's basically been around for like 40, 50 years at this point. Yeah, I think they they, they first album came out like early seventies. Early seventies, right? Still doing it. Two brothers from Los Angeles. Basically came up at a time where they saw the kind of explosion of rock and roll take place. And like many of a, of a, of a teenager at that time, they wanted to be rock stars. I mean, f- famously, this is like, yeah, they're really in the center of things when, when things kick off. There is, on the Wikipedia page, they like gesture towards this in the, um, in the movie. But they are at the, what's, what's the, the famous Rolling Stones rock and roll show. It's a TA... Tammy show, T A M I show. It's this famous like Rolling Stones, James Brown, Jan and Dean like live televised performance, and like they are like like not just like they are like in the front row of this incredibly incredible. The documentary is famous because the Rolling Stones are like the big band to come out of town, and James Brown just absolutely just burns down the stage, and everyone's like, oh shit, I guess. That was better than anything else is going to be today, huh? Right, yeah. The Rolling Stones didn't know. It. So what you're talking about, though, is that there's a documentary of this show. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, talking about the Sparks documentary. No, no, but in the and documentary these... of the show, you can see Brother Sparks like right. the, for much of the crowd shots because they're like... Front row. Like, like yeah, very front flipping row. Out. Flipping out. Right, right. And so like... The, Cutie the, pies. So Cutie the, pies. The Sparks documentary, which came out last year, definitely kind of frames their intro to music as like and that's kind of like the aha moment really and they all want to become like rock stars basically after that and the reason why we're talking about sparks though to maybe just like reel back a minute is that as i said earlier sparks are like apparently highly influential and you see that in this documentary where basically you have beck talking about how how influential sparks is he has this great line where basically if you spend enough time with another artist it always comes around to sparks you got flea talking about sparks a bunch of other artists they're highly influential and yet they're not a household name and like according to the way that people talk about them they either are the band they're a band that never quite made it that should have 
or at least like doesn't get the recognition they should have. And that documentary was kind of uh, correcting the narrative and kind of giving them the spotlight they deserved. Well, our idea in talking about this documentary was that like in some ways this band, you know, documentary got a lot of buzz. Sparks is like an incredibly highly rated band. And just like using it as a way to think as like an interesting vantage point onto the evolution of the Ameri- of the music industry over the past 40 something years because they occupy like Saxon was saying they occupy this like very weird very particular space that almost no one else does and that by kind of tracing and talking through their career like it, it connects in ways that this is true and and you know credit where credit's due like no one else had this career and actually it did raise some interesting questions and help me see some interesting patterns about like the, the changes of the evolution of the music industry in the era really from 1971 to 2020 and really <laughs> it tells you stuff about the music industry the whole way through yeah and i think that's spot on and one of the reasons why I made you walk is watch the documentary. <laughs> because, no, because because really I think, you know, yeah, the narrative, like, oh, they get the credit that they should have deserved. Yeah, all that stuff. Like, you know, I'm kind of less interested in that. I'm more interested when I, when I you know, I mean, I already knew about Sparks, but like when I really saw the documentary, I started reading more about them to be like, actually, this is like an entirely unique space that they've occupied because to say that they were completely unsuccessful is like also like not fair. Like they were, they've been doing this partly probably like good money management, also an extreme dedication and some sort of working relationship to be able to continue to make music for over like a 40 plus year period. And like, yeah, like not punching your brother in the head. Really, like the the, the level of professional not punching your sibling in the head demonstrated by this movie (laughs) was, uh, as a sibling, mind-blowing to me. Like they seem like, I'm like, y'all get along to a frankly frightening degree yeah yeah and I, I think you do you do see and i think less in music but you do see artists more on an individual level but you do see artists who are were kind of like able to like maintain some sort of relevance some sort of like level of sustainability or like half sustainability when it comes to like you know the money they're making like through you know a long period of time numerous decades and never quite really quote unquote like make it but like still make a career out of it i'm thinking like somebody like um, the New York Times, strangely, uh, recently did a profile of Michael Hurley, this like longtime old school folk artist who's like now in his 80s and like was like part of the scene like in like down in the village like in the 60s, but then kind of went out west and did his own thing. And like, you know, there's a quote in the in the article that was that that we can go ahead and post to um, uh, in the show description because it's a great article and people should know about Michael Hurley because it's also a fascinating story. But basically, like, you know, Michael Hurley did everything he could to, like, not be famous, but still, like, be artistically, f- but but still have an outlet to, like, sustain his, like, creative output and his, and his music. And, like, I'm not saying that, like, Sparks and Michael Hurley are, like, are really, are, are similar, but, you know, you do see this sort of, you do see this sometimes in various art forms, right? And it, I think it's always really interesting, kind of like we did with Fugazi, to be honest with you, to really examine that because it's like, okay, like it's not just a brief blip underground scene. It's not like a major star or band but like they, the Rolling Stones. Like, like, what is this sort of middle ground? And like, what can we learn from that? Like the music industry, and like, what can you know? Is it even still possible? So like, 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 from what I get, what you're saying, 
is that for these long time life surviving bands and some level like it's the most agency that a musical recording artist has the superstar ones like maybe they have got there's a period of time where they have like it's really like catch as catch can and then they blow up and then they've got a different set of options available to them and they've got the resources of the industry that are able to work for them and clearly not everyone has the career longevity of like the rolling stones or paul mccartney but like obviously but it's a different thing and then you've got like really small artists who like maybe blow up maybe don't but there is this funny middle ground where it's like they really do have a lot of ability to shape their careers side note michael hurley's plays on have moisey which is my favorite album i listened to last year um it is just a wild ramshackle uh it's some of the guys from the holy moment rounders which is such a good band and michael hurley and just like they sort of just like as far as i could tell like got kind of drunk and made up what sounds like a mixture of old folk songs and like old tin pan alley songs that they play okay and it's great it's just like like <laughs> nice it's just a fabulous album yeah yeah well so, i mean but like those not to digress too much no but no, no but like you brought up michael hurley no like. yeah but people like michael hurley and people like sparks and then like you can go into like other like there's there's other examples of artists like that it is this interesting combination of like they got enough talent to sort of like still get shows and put out albums it gets like some sort of like some money right and some sense of popularity, which is important. But there's also, like, a level of like, tenacity and, like, dedication. And then, like, with that, like, allows for a certain artistic freedom in what you're saying. Like, and no matter what their goal was. And I think that made it, you know, obviously, Michael Hurley and Sparks are very, very, very different. But I think that the one thing I would say is that Michael Hurley seemed really dedicated to being, like, just doing what he wanted to do musically. While Sparks was always just trying to get famous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, I mean, like, Hurley has those, like... You know, uh, we laugh, that, but that, actually, that... It's, it's quite true, like... Sparks really did want to make it in all the sort of like typical ways in which you imagine, you know, like they wanted to be famous. They wanted, you know, to be like rock stars. Like, and it, it that, I mean, that's comes across like in the documentary pretty clearly, like they weren't trying to be underground. <laughs> yeah. And, and so maybe that's like a, a good place to start. Right. So, so like their dad dies pretty young, like middle class, but like a little bit tenuous and they both go to UCLA, um, which again is just like a, a point. I just want to, make of if you look at the 60s and the ability of the 60s to to produce a tremendous amount of great art part of it is because every the number of kids who could get into a college like film department and pay like look what was the tuition to ucla in 1965 66 i just like every time that happens i've got like a running file in the back of my head where i'm like how much were the rolling stones paying for art school how much did it cost to stay in London? You want to know why there was like a particularly large amount of great music produced, like and 65 art in general. and just art in general. It's because it was financially viable to exist and to get educated and have the space to like learn and like and th- easy to get access to like equipment, studios, film, whatever you're doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure easy to get access to that. I'm less sure about maybe. No, but I mean, if you're going to like a university that's like cheap, like you're getting access, you know. Sure, but more, more than that, Morrison like, was making like you know sh- like shitty you know super eight millimeter films and like you know getting them critiqued in like art school before he dropped out. Yeah, no, sure, but more than that, just like have the time to play around aesthetically without having to work 
two or three jobs just to be able to stay in the city where things are happening. Yeah, so, and, and this is like why people go to MFA programs now. It's essentially to make connections, but also just to like carve out the time. But people right. are paying like literally going massively into debt just to have the time to make fucking art. So the Sparks Brothers is, and, and you know, the Sparks Brothers film and visual images are super important. Ron Mayle, who's the, the, the piano player and the kind of, um, most of the songwriter, definitely the lyricist, extremely influenced by film, by the French New Wave, and like spends four years like in a film department, which he has access to. And I, I just think that like that's like it's useful to point to when those like, like the the expansion of college education that the state of California did in the '60s has was unparalleled, literally up until very recently in China, like unparalleled in the history of humanity, and it produced a ton of great art and great culture because it turns out that if you let ambitious people not have to break themselves and make careerist decisions and let them like have a decent standard of living and f engage with art and culture it's incredibly productive and allows like an unlocking of human potential yeah amen on that and i think that's a great that's a great point to bring up and and we don't need to go into the full history of like sparks is like you know like background but like that that that's really important to bring up for sure similarly they talk about it they're on food stamps, which they right. easily get early on because there's still state support. And as they're a struggling band, right, they struggle for like two or three albums. Uh, they make these weird albums that don't go anywhere. Um, they're, they're able to focus entirely on music. Yeah, so they make albums that don't really go anywhere, and they decide to head over to the UK. Well, yeah, and, and this is, like, another interesting element of their story, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the the internationalism of the way they play the music industry, right? Yeah. Which is that they are, lots of people think that they are a British band. Because they sound very glam rock, that they blow up in the UK. And... Their career has there's a, been yeah. There's like a bit of satire to their lyrics, which you would I think like it's an arch, yeah, it's a music hall arch. Yeah, you see you see more in like like bands like the Kinks that it seems to be more like yeah more UK sort of like style. But yeah, but basically like one of the things that's really interesting about their career overall, and this is going to be something that happens over and over again, is the way in which because they get some buy-in from the music industry fairly early, so they have first band have Nelson, Todd Rudgren hears them, Todd Rudgren who's like got a my understanding, and I don't really know the deal with Bearsville Studio, is like has a fairly early semi-independent record label, which is very unusual at that time. So it has and it has also connections to majors. So champions them, gets two albums put out. Again, this is a period of time where the music industry is running hot. 
music industry is making a lot of money in the late yeah. 60s. It has a lot of money to play with. It has a lot of money to throw because you know what? You throw money around and most of the time you're clear light, but sometimes you're Buffalo Springfield. And a Buffalo <laughs> Springfield pays for a lot of clear lights. Um, so... Got any clear light records over I there? I do. It's too scratched up to really listen to. <laughs> uh, it was a bummer. I bought it for a dollar because like, what? I'm going to not buy a clear light record for a dollar, but like it's pretty too scratched up to listen to it. I even bought special cleaning stuff to see if I could make it sound. It's not good. Yeah. Footnote, we're recording again in Sam's uh, office slash living room. <laughs> so they're then like, basically the label is like, and again, this is a fascinating move that gets you a sense of like how the music industry functions. And, and it's a story I don't, that because it's so unromantic, um, it's a story that that doesn't get discussed a lot. Yeah. Because in some ways, it's not about a band as part of a scene. It's not about music being produced as a clear community. It's like this very like pragmatic, utilitarian. Yeah, like yeah. they're like, oh, we have a label subsidiary in London. We're gonna send you there because by literally just moving your context, we think that we can frame you as a British band. And you'll do better there. And by golly, they were right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this is kind of like another example, I think, in which we've discussed a few times, or like at least mentioned, where, you know, all the criticisms that we can level, like, you know, in the last like 50, 60 years at the record industry, it's like sometimes they fucking know what they're doing, actually. And like they've like done, you know, decently productive and helpful things for bands and artists. Yeah. So basically they, they drop the, the males off in London they put together a band really quickly. They write a whole bunch of songs kind of in this glammy, almost a little bit of proto metal Like, the guitar riffs are pretty big. Yeah, yeah. And Russell uh, Mail's, like, screeching at the top of his lungs, these, like, arch-weird lyrics, and they kind of go off. Yeah, yeah. They, they get put on TV, and, like, yeah, like, Britain loves them, basically. Yeah, and Britain also loves them because... And, it is impossible to overstate the extent to which Ron Mail sort of looks like Adolf Hitler, like uh, or Charlie Chaplin. But like you know, we all understand the the, the, right. the the classic like Charlie Chaplin Adolf Hitler dichotomy there. But he's got like he's got slicked back hair. He's, he looks like a a like a villainous bookkeeper. Yeah, he never which, smiles when he's at the when he's at the keyboard. He has a very thin mustache. Yeah, uh, thick in the center. Oh well, it changed. <laughs> it used to be thin, and then it was thick in the center. Right, right. I guess this is the thick in the center. Fam- like, yeah. Famously thick in the center. Sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, at this point, yeah, yeah. Now it's thin, right? Yeah, that's true. That's yeah, true. now it's kind of a John Watersy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Flourish, right? Oh, Upper true. lip flourish. That's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so they they blow, and this is like. So far, this is sort of them being a semi... This is, like, this is the trajectory that, like, is, is like, this is where, like, the trajectory is normal, right? right. They bounce around it's for like where they want to be, too. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly... This is what, like, they're on their way to stardom, so they think. Yeah. They, like, they're doing weird stuff. They got it's, a popular single. They're on TV. Girls are screaming the whole nine yards. Right. They bounce around for a little while. They moved a little bit. They changed a little bit. They're blowing up. And so then, like, what happens is what happens always, right? They have a one huge album, Come On To My House. Which is a great cover. Great cover. Um, great, look, yeah, the covers of this band, credit again, credit where credit is due. I got very sick of Sparks by the end of this documentary, <laughs> but credit where credit is due. They often look great. 
honestly, like maybe the alternative career they should have taken was like a photographer art direction. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> like a, woofer, a woofer in tweeters clothing is one of the great all time album titles. Yes. So good. Yeah. Um, which is the second album, which doesn't really do anything. Yeah. So at this point it's like, they're where they want to be, but it's also sort of this crossroads where it's like, okay, either you are a one hit wonder or you like continue to be like a fucking rock star. And you know, are able to, and they're unwilling to bend. They're unwilling yeah. to. So they make two albums. First album's huge. Oh, and, but Second unwill- album's yeah. big, not quite as big. Yeah, and they're usually unwilling to bend in the sense that like they're unwilling to bend creatively and artistically. Yeah, or but also like unwilling to. And this is, I think, where the the difference between Sparks and a truly <laughs> successful band is right is that. Think about the famous like shapeshifters of the sixties or seventies. Bowie. Bowie Bowie doesn't do, Ben sometimes later in his career, um, like cough everything after nineteen eighty cough. <laughs> that man's ability to except for Black Star, an amazing album. That man's ability to stay culturally relevant while not having produced a record for twenty five years blew my mind. <laughs> However, yeah, like like uh, artists like Bowie, for instance is changing and is sort of with more or less success like taking his audience on them with a on a journey with him right right he's this bowie he's that bowie he's funk bowie he's berlin bowie and he's constantly changing according to his artistic desires but also like in a way that gives a fuck about the audience and and the males seem like constitutionally unable to do that as well like they're gonna do exactly what they want but they're not they they do not have an ability to read the room yeah that's interesting i know the boy the boy comparison comparison is interesting because i think that i think it's really interesting because i think that like the sort of i guess you could probably consider the second big change in bowie's career when he was when he when he cut himself loose from the spiders from mars he had already seen a considerable amount of success that was not like a one-hit wonder and, and and something that kind of like comes up that's really interesting and you know is that sparks kind of almost changes too quickly too much right but it still is that sort of like i'm gonna do this art this artistic change because like I, we, I, we want to right and in a weird way like bad respect but it also kind of ends up in a lot of ways backfiring because they're unable to read the room like you say or if not or if not read the room maybe like not take of the advice of people who probably actually know better. Yeah, I mean, but that's part of reading the room, like having knowing which advisors to listen to. Sure. So, and so th- there's this tension, though, really, between like their desire for being famous and their desire for like kind of artistic freedom, and they're in a weird way they they stay in this middle ground kind of for their entire career. No, and- yeah, exactly, and and that's one of the really interesting things I think about this band overall, which is that. Because of when they emerge in the music industry, which is the late 60s, right? It's easy to project back what I would call like rock and roll modernity, which is really like punk rock and onwards. Project that back to the early to, to the 60s because so many of those bands are still around in the 70s or so much part of the conversation. But like, there's like a like you could almost call it like an aesthetic a problem of like aesthetic subject position that I think Sparks has. And what I mean by that is like 
I'm not sure if the position of cult rock and roll band as something that you can do, like it hasn't been created yet. Yeah, no, that's a great Even point. Even like yeah. the Velvet Underground, right? Like talk about the Velvet Underground, yeah, which are often point. held yeah. up by as the most like they are the epitome of the band that invents this. the classic saying be like nobody bought nobody 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 bought a velvet underground record but everybody that did like like started their own band yeah, or something yeah, like yeah. that something that saying is but yeah, yeah. but but if you think about loaded right which has sweet jane and rock and roll on it they're trying to write pop hits they're at the even, request of like their label manager or whatever yes but also like um uh lou reed was a pop songwriter before he's in the band facts same thing with like Doing the the Ramones, right, were like, we just thought we were the Bay City Rollers. We were just deeply troubled. <laughs> like, we were just, we thought we were writing pop songs, which it turns out, from the perspective of Green Day, they were. Right. But, like, there wasn't, it's not until punk has rewritten, like, the historiography of rock and roll, right, that you get to a place where the, the, the idea that, oh, I'm going to be a weird band and not want to be part of the mainstream. And that is an, a thinkable position. An aesthetically viable and thinkable position is really open. And maybe that's 73, 74, somewhere in there. Maybe for a couple bands a little bit earlier. But 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 like Sparks, that's not available to them. And what's funny is even though that they survive through to the point where that is totally an option, they, for most of their career, like don't, that's just not, in their vocabulary and so they are always trying like they can't say we're going to keep the cult and just be weird yeah basically what you're saying is that like maybe looking back we could be like oh yeah they were like this underground 60s band or they're their underground 70s band but like actually at the time if you go back to the 60s or 70s there really was no pathway to be like quote unquote underground like you were either like successful or you weren't yeah and if you think even if you think about like the scenes right Maybe the San Francisco scene hadn't broken nationally, but those bands are selling out halls. They're just selling out halls locally. So in some ways, like, cultness is much more, and I wonder if this is about the, the integration of the music industry, that, like, in the 60s, cultness is much more about geography yeah. than it is about, like, uh, like size of national audience. It's like, you're big locally, and then maybe you'll break nationally. But it's not like, oh, you have a national, you're not Fugazi, where you have a national following of a couple kids in every high school. Right, and, like, so, like, in this situation, it's oftentimes, like, retroactively applied in a way to like sell records actually if you think about it it's kind of like almost a marketing scheme like yeah like the velvet underground were like truly underground but like was anybody really describing them that way or they were just like that weird art band that was playing the like andy warhol shows and then later we were like oh it was like this cult they were that cult band from like the late 60s early 70s like it's like no, that's just, a retroactively applied they were just unsuccessful they were bands. just unsuccessful completely yeah. and actually if you read like the oral history if you read Please Kill Me, which includes a lot of, like, it's an oral history of, like, that whole era. What a and, good book. Yeah, a great book. And, like, you, like, and, like, what, like, the members of Velvet Underground say is that, yeah, that's basically it. They were just fucking unsuccessful. <laughs> and they knew it. <laughs> yeah. So that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a really, that's a, that's, a, that's a really kind of, like, a great point. And what's kind of funny moving forward is that even though Sparks was, like, constantly trying to, like, be successful, like, they actually, in a weird way, kind of paved the path for like other bands to like be mildly like to be sustainable but like maybe be underground or cult in a sense if that if, if that makes sense yeah because it, it like following someone you rewrite the history and you're like oh sparks a band that some people like right and this is my tension when i when i say that like when people are like oh like the the band that never made it but i'm like you know they kind of were i mean 
certain de- certain like smart decisions aside that they made like they did kind of actually make a like a whole career and living out of this well, and, even and, though they didn't achieve what they specifically wanted so this is where i feel like it, it, it it's time to get to like the second big sparks moment right which is so after kicking around for most of the set the second half of the 70s they moved back to new york they sorry, they moved back to la they cut a record in new york less and less success seem more and more tired they, they discovered the synth <laughs> yeah yeah basically and in like a really strong move they were just like they heard donna summer and Giorgio Moroder, and basically this bullshit we're like we'd like to work with Giorgio Moroder, and made the contact and produced this record number one record in heaven which really i personally had not prior to doing some research for this heard this album um yeah they really invented a lot of like new romantic dance pop stuff it's super marauded out it's really good and so so they have this new set of hits right they they really yeah this this like lays the foundations for like a lot of synth pop records this is this moment where like you know people are looking for sonic influences to put together into a new style and this is like one of the records and they have hits with it again and and what i thought was interesting about this and again this is like the fun thing about this documentary, which is just like because they ca- they they carve this like weird and torturous path through the music industry, they like it raises a lot of questions about like how things function. And for me, what was crazy was like, okay, they have a hit in seventy three was their last big hit, and then they're kind of on the down career trajectory, and then they blow up again in. 1980 with like a different version of what they had done the first time like in a new sonic garb and it's interesting because like a like and blowing up in a different location like it got big in germany and then it kind of went like more like across like europe and then maybe to the states i don't know to the uk so yeah yeah uk yeah definitely but like but again like this is like this funny thing this is like the the they're because they're entrenched and they've done well enough to continue to get industry support like a they're able to keep making records and keep making plays like getting their record distributed like to have a sudden hit right the, you know the, the the famous um like the end of spinal tap where like they have a hit record in japan and the manager gets the band back together sorry if i'm ruining spinal tap for anyone <laughs> um but really you you've you've ruined it for yourself <laughs> um if you haven't seen it uh but like that means you have to have distribution in Japan. Someone needs to press yeah. physical records and get them to Japan or press them in Japan. Right. And similarly, like you need to be fairly entrenched in the like record industry in order to have German distribution. This right. is why like when Metallica is happening, when the new wave, you know, it there there's a tape trade, a Grateful Dead inspired tape trading network that's like sending sacks and cassette tapes bootleg versions of sacks and cassette tapes to the bay area and that's why like metallica's drummer because he had been in denmark grown up in denmark and had access like had friends there like was able to be like when when lars ulrich like moves from like i think denmark to the bay area like he still has friends there and so he's like the cool metal kid because he's getting like the the cassette the bootleg cassette tape because there's no distribution and so like they're insiders enough and again this sparks is, sparks yeah sparks is insiders enough to like get german distribution to get producers hooked up but also like this funny thing of like um 
the the ability of music then, and it still may be true now, but to a lesser extent, to be like, oh, you had a hit seven years ago in one style. Your ability to reposition yourself and have a new hit in a new style, like, does that still exist in the same well, way? Well, like, I think the question, I think the question is, why was it possible then? And I think maybe some of it had to do with the fact that, it was that they never actually got that big, and because it was like a different location as well. Yeah, I I also. I think- mean, there are stories. There are stories about people being like, "Oh yeah, like I heard that song," and I was like, "I remember those guys. Those are the guys that did this." But there wasn't that sort of like the transitions that Bowie made, which you mentioned earlier. Like you have fans who are like along the ride for that, and also you're having like, sure. and you're also probably like Bowie's like my mom. Like I know like got into Bowie like during like Young Americans era. Right. And like, even to this day, if I play like Ziggy Stardust Bowie, she's kind of like, yeah, whatever. Right. And then you have fans that were like, correct take. Right. (laughs) Facts. But even then, you have like fans who like were like going along for the whole ride, but like came in at different entry points. Sparks doesn't have those. Right. And Sparks doesn't have those. Right. So, in a weird way, it's kind of like, like, what the the amount of fans that they were taking along for the whole ride like were like either are very minimal and and not important so in a weird way it was like actually like a complete reinvention where like they could pre- be presented and i don't think they were marketed this way but if you think about like the consumer and how they're like taking this new record and this new single they're basically a new band yeah i mean also i think that there's a funny thing about like waves of rock and roll nostalgia that we don't talk about that much and a a big story of the early 80s it seems to me of the 80s in general right is in some ways it's like the pop version of the back to basics punk thing which is that it's if you think of like the new york dolls as looking to chuck berry really hard and basically like we're gonna be chuck berry but like on even more heroin the 80s are like again like it's 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 elvis but with synths like certainly like that's wham's career is like we're elvis but with synths more or less or we're motown is maybe even the better example we're motown but with synths and so i do feel like there's this position for a lot of artists in the early 80s and there's like a whole wave of them right is that a bunch of bands that kind of like kind of fell apart in the 70s have 80s era hits where they can be like oh the music that we grew up with is hip again and we can kind of pull from it and add this new sonic signifier that allows it to sound new and all of a sudden it it, it has a pop viability in a way it didn't have previously and i think that's a really interesting moment in like this just like the cultural evolution of this music i mean it also kind of speaks to sort of an element of like music or at least like popular music that's sort of ephemeral in a sense as well and kind of like thinking about this idea like right now we're thinking about like wait a minute like how like we're thinking about the music of a band like basically two brothers or like we're thinking about bowie and we're thinking about it as like this entire catalog and trying to create like some sort of narrative that like connects through that catalog mm, yeah. right but in a weird way it's like they're actually just individual albums right that are coming and they out pop into people's lives yeah and they pop into people's lives and they come out right and like i think that if anything the music industry probably like knows that sure right? they're not like the people that like Whoever, I mean, the story behind how that Marauder hit, like, got out into the public is kind of funny and, like, kind of a little bit happenstance. Apparently, they sent it to, like, some German label and, like, it sat on the shelf forever and everything like that. But, like, nonetheless, when they decided to, to, like, go ahead and put it out into the public, 
they weren't like, well, I don't know. Like these guys used to sound like this and they didn't have a lot of success. So like, I don't know if we should do this. Maybe if they had like a, like the Sparks had like, you know, maybe that'd be the case. If like if a band, had, if they had fans to offend. Right. Or, 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 or like, you know, that'd be questioned. Or like if they had this like, like record contract, like a five record contract with like a label and label, like, you know, was extremely involved in putting a lot of money into it to a certain extent. But if you're just thinking about like how the music changed and like how we access music and sort of like, how music functions in our lives particularly on like a sort of popular culture level doesn't really matter who they were yeah yeah that's a really good point that's a really good point but which also but it was also so fascinating about sparks and kind of like allowed them to like have the this very strange the very strange career trajectory that they've had and how we're actually and also why we're able to even like talk about the music industry in relation to sparks like in this way <laughs> because you know they were constantly reinventing like, themselves they and were... they had almost like no past because they never really fully made it so like if they were a more known commodity it would have been more resistance but because they were kind of an eternally they were constantly be always becoming and never being like <laughs> no true though it's true i know it's silly as it sounds it is true it's very true yeah, yeah I, I, I just want to flag my favorite moment in the documentary is when georgia Moroder is talks about the studio they recorded with him recorded with sparks and he's like it was beautiful it had thousands of sounds and it's <laughs> yeah, just it's like whoa yeah that is like yeah i had never thought about that but yeah in 1980 or 1979 a studio that could produce thousands of sounds and you just think about like the the, the technology and the way that changes the creation of music like right. my computer has th thousands <laughs> of sounds right like right. garage band right you can make thousands of sounds I mean, like, what's crazy is that they get this, they get this, this hit basically, and then they kind of milk and, it for a couple years, and like influence essentially what you're calling like romantic, like synth yeah, new pop or whatever, yeah, new, new romanticism, romanticism, like new order, eurythmics, all that stuff, and uh, then they like once again, well, no, they have a couple hits. They have that the hit with the the uh, the girl from the Go Go's. Oh yeah, Go Go's 
are so cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love I love the Go Go's. Yeah, I love their germs connection. I love everything about it. Another another quintessentially LA band. So yeah, so they they have a couple hits in the eighties. They get like lapel expansion, like everyone else in the eighties. <laughs> what? Yes. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, and then they fall off the face of the earth yet again. A little bit longer this time. Yeah, this one is a little bit longer. Right. The late eighties through early nineties, they don't have any success. They don't have, can't get a contract. They're recording a lot of stuff. They have an early home studio. But that's that, but that right there. Like I just put a, like a pin in that, which I think is just interesting, and it kind of just speaks to everything we've been saying. And so I, you know, for the sake of being like too repetitive here, but they had a home studio, you know, and I just think that that's like shows that like they were really grinding out this space, which it's like, yes, they made good financial decisions and everything, but it's like they had enough to have a home in LA where they had a home studio with enough equipment to continue to make music. So like, once again, like the band had a certain level of success, which like hundreds of thousands of other bands have like never even touched. Yeah. 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 And they're that. And so what's, what's funny, we were talking about this is like, there is this funny thing, like in the, like what, what did their lack of success tell us about the nineties? Cause it was, it's like they're like a weird cult glam rock band. Like, did, you know, I'm just thinking about like Kurt Cobain, like championing the raincoats, championing Leonard all Cohen, time. Leonard Cohen, and like a lot of earlier, much like that 80s moment, right? When a lot of earlier bands, you know, everything comes in 20 year cycles. So like at the 80s moment, a lot of like 50s or 60s, 60s artists who grew up in the 50s got a second shot at making pop hits. The 90s has a lot of 70s rock bands have a second. So you've got Neil Young making an album with Pearl Jam. You've got like a lot of, you know, everyone just slaps some guitar distortion on. And that's actually a fascinating, like weird cut of thing of as, as, like weird, weird cut of records is like the records that veteran artists who were kind of out of the mainstream made in 1993 1994 like if you listen to i forget which one it is, is it mighty like a rose the elvis no it's was it when i was cruel it's the the elvis costello 1994 record he made like a wannabe grunge record because like elvis someone's like yo elvis like you could basically make a grunge record and he's like oh yeah i just put on more distortion Sounds horrible. <laughs> it was okay. It's, it was okay. No, but like, there's a lot of like yeah, people yeah. who are like like making yeah. their Point like taken. right. Yeah. Um, and it's just fascinating to me that like this band, like, what does it say about the industry that like they just didn't they just didn't. Yeah, yeah. It's you know like the, the sense of the, the culture shift that is the '80s to the '90s, and that some of this is like the damage that, at least in America, that Ronald Reagan did the culture of this country especially with like the intentional murder of the gay community because of a total lack of support for aids research or funding or like admitting that it was a problem and that that has it takes a little bit of time to go through but that has an impact on the kinds of popular music and the kinds of cultural forms that are all produced. forms of cultural forms yeah. all, 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 all cultural forms like in america yeah totally and like if you think about sure the 90s are like very ironic and very um interested in like certain kinds of expression early 90s places you know feminism is like really important to the like riot girl or like a variety of things but it's like it's a much straighter 
yeah. less arch, less flamboyant period of certainly rock culture. Yeah, we were kind of talking about this last night really briefly just in preparation for the show in the sense that like, like, wait, 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 why why did Sparks, was Sparks not able to sort of tap the sort of like grunge scene? And like kind of looking back, it made me like not look at Sparks, but actually look at the grunge scene. You're like, oh, this is actually like a very like sort of hyper-masculine scene of music or era of music that like you know maybe was a little bit more weepy and you know had long hair or whatever but i mean it's basically like uh hair metal with more minor chords <laughs> well it's or or like um it's like it's ironic in like an existentialist way not ironic in like a um gilbert and sullivan way mm-hmm. and yeah. Like Sparks is nothing if not at least Gilbert and Sullivan adjacent. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're a yeah. modern major general, like top to bottom. <laughs> right. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. like a little something about them is just like a little too cute and like show tunesy. Yeah. 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 Through all eras, <laughs> <laughs> like never, it never stops. Yeah. Yeah. So then. And, like, I guess the 90s wanted their, like, sad, masculine white guy with, like, long hair and flannel or something. I don't know. It's very strange. Yeah, but I'm thinking about, like, even the glam rock bands. You know, there's a couple. There's Urge Overkill. There's Chainsaw Kittens. And so then, again, like, and if this sounds repetitive, dear listener, it's because it is. They have another goddamn, goddamn it. They did, like, they have another goddamn hit. They did it again. They did it again. <laughs> and at this point, I'm just like, oh, please stop doing it so this movie can end. And they have this, like... Euro trash dance record that again <laughs> blows up, in which Europe. was also like a weird blip of time, which was like kind of hot. I mean, you think about like I'm blue, Eiffel 65, or whatever. Well, that <laughs> like, was like five years later. That's yeah, a 2001 yeah. record, right? Okay, but still, like Euro trash was definitely like on the rise of this. Yeah, time. yeah it's like, just like it's like um love after love vibed, right. but like with, with more clever lyrics. When do yeah. I get to sing my way? Yeah, and like they have another hit. Yeah. And it blows up again and again because they're just adjacent enough to the music industry. But at this, it was interesting at this point. I mean, there is like a space for like an underground. But and they don't get it. Well, when you say they don't get it, it's like they don't understand it. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, like they don't understand what they've done. Yeah, and they, so, don't, they don't understand that they are a cult band. And I think that's also what kind of like one of the reasons why we wanted to do this episode as well is that like – we kind of the narrative we kind of see actually like an alternative narrative it's like actually like maybe when describing sparks like yeah sure the band they maybe always wanted to make it but never made it but then by accident was able to carve out this weird sort of place which i think exists very very much today and i think you kind of saw begin to really take shape and solidify i think like in the like sort of a post napster era you know, where when like the, the rise of the MP3, where you kind of begin to see a lot of bands that were like indie rock bands in a certain um, like period of time, like suddenly get on the radio or like on MTV. And like it's like you start to see like and like so by the time that like Sparks kind of comes around, it's like like for like a third, fifth, whatever fucking revival that Sparks is like coming around at this time that sort of space is starting to actually be carved out and they were kind of like one of the spearheads to do it. So, so yeah. Unbeknownst so, to them, maybe. So, so, so this is actually, I think, the really fascinating thing. So like, for me, like the triumph of this movie and like of their career and a fascinating point that I think that, that uh, as we wrap this up, I think I want to spend some time really focusing on and thinking through is the last chapter of Spark's career. 
because basically, again, they have this big hit in like 1994, 1995. They make another record that's like that because they're like chasing the brass ring that's like that but less good. They kind of fall off again. They're working in their home studios and they make a, frankly, what I've got to say as a now a confirmed Spark Skeptic, a really good album. Maybe the first of their career. <laughs> Lil Beethoven, which is a hilarious name. It's not a hilarious name. It's a mids name. It's a fine name, but it's a weird album of just like obsessive, looping. I don't know. Like sexy. We just play like a second of like "Baby's Taking Me Home" just so people have like a sense of like what this album sounds right. like. Yeah, let's do this. Home, my baby's taking me home. 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 Yeah, so I mean, like, like well, a whole vibe. I, th- I, th- I think, like, I think, well, I think, like, something I said like the other day to you about. I was like, oh, that that's when like Sparks realized that they could actually just be what they always should have been, which is an art band. Well, yeah, <laughs> like, and so, 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 I'm really interested. I'm really interested in thinking about what changes in the political economy and the media ecosystem of popular music, such that not only do they finally figure out what's happening, but I also think that there's a new infrastructure of consumption and like listening and identity that allows that to happen like they are a critical like they make this album little beethoven it's a critical it's a little artier and so it's a massive critical success and now they're like a beloved critically acclaimed band in the early 2000s and it's funny because it's a position we don't think about a lot but it's a it's a different position than existed I think prior to that because I think that by around 2001 and maybe this is an indicator of like broader cultural shifts that are moving through rock music by around 2001 what's happened right pop has blown up again hip-hop and country have moved to become really dominant forces in American music and pop which used to be sorry rock which used to be a pop music is increasingly not becoming a pop music or like a, a like a, a by by definition off the cuff of course a rock band is a pop band of course rock is pop music so that closes doors for certain kinds of bands but it opens doors for other bands that are able to be like well i'm just gonna sell to this set of fans this set of fans who has disposable income like like upper like white dudes who are more likely to have in the late 90s early 2000s more disposable income looking for a certain kind of commodity to to create an identity with and like like you know and like be able to like sell out like uh 20 nights of a thing and yeah 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 or i was just saying like there just seems to be like more of a space for that sort of like mid-level band that like like doesn't sell out like you know yankee stadium but is like able to like you know get like a couple thousand people at like a mid-sized venue like in a major urban center or like are willing to still buy a record right even after napster 
or buy a ex- more expensive concert ticket right. or like the kinds of consumer yeah. goods that follow with like the almost like the gentrification of rock music. So, so like, what do you mean by that? So, I mean, like, instead of rock being a you want to sell everyone in the country a thing for five dollars, right? You want to sell 10,000 people a thing for $25. It's like the really expensive, like, coffee shop. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's exactly the same thing. Right. But you can make for you can make a decent level of success by being a critically acclaimed band and like that gets written up in magazines that have increasingly small and somewhat older readership and sell out different kinds of venues and like there's real money there and it's the, it's the gentrification of rock. It's kind of exactly so. Let me like. ask you through the show. We've basically been saying that Sparks kind of spearheaded this weird middle ground. And, which we're, which we're discussing now, but I mean, they didn't necessarily like actually create it. It's also kind of like they were like just doing it, and then like the culture caught up in a sense. Like or, I mean, or, like, like the like, sort of pitchforkization of the culture. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Like no, yeah. totally. And like right. if you think about like the big bands, it's like you know, like thinking about like the Soft Bulletin by the Flaming Lips, which is released right. the same year as Little Beethoven, mm-hmm. and similarly like makes them a large cult band right but a mid-sized venue a band. mid-sized right. a solid but like an expensive mid-sized venue right. with you know 30 dollar tickets not right. 15 dollar tickets right and but like when they get off tour they probably like made money like i don't know how much money i don't know if you could buy them a house but like they made money in oklahoma yeah in Oklahoma. yeah sure facts I always forget they live in oklahoma wild um yeah. no yeah totally and and then you have this different apparatus right so in some ways if like the last stage of the rock critical consensus also where in a weird way it's like their blaze of final glory where i would argue that probably spin and rolling stone have more influence on the fate of bands in 2001 to 2005 right before they totally lose the ability to have any control because it's a smaller audience it's a smaller market and the importance of that cultural, like having that tastemaker status is, is bigger because of, of, of the specific dynamics of that market. And so the fact that they release a record that's weird and arty and allows people who maybe knew about Sparks to like put this like career trajectory narrative together, um, it means that and they can exist in that media ecosystem it brings them a different kind of success and then what's fascinating is that is the kind of success that they just follow like once they are finally finally a cult band which they finally feel comfortable in that they're finally comfortable in that and And then france Ferdinand comes along it's like let's make a record and (laughs) they do and then they do a whole bunch of like smart cult bandy things they do yeah. this, they make this they do this uh like, it's like the market finally like ex- the market that they would should have been always like like perfect for like finally actually exists yeah so then they do yeah. a thing where it's like they do a 20 night run where they play their new album every night and then one of their previous 20 albums okay, insane insane <laughs> but that means to make that work it means you have an audience who's willing to drop refer back to our Ticketmaster episode 30 pounds 
plus yeah. ten CCR. pounds, yeah. like uh, <laughs> like service fee, service fee yeah, yeah, yeah. for twenty nights. Yeah, nearly hundred bucks, right? Yeah, you, you know, and and I mean, I'm making up that number, but it's sure. like those are, but it's like a yeah. medium sized venue. It's like barbecue stuff, right? right, right it's like right. an art. It's like it's adjacent, and, and partially that's because it's moved out of a mass market space, yeah. and into a high culture adjacent space. And I feel like that's really indicative for what, or, or sheds a really interesting light on what's happening to rock overall. Yeah, for sure. And then what's really fascinating is, yeah, like you said, they make this album with Franz Ferdinand. And what's fascinating is that Franz Ferdinand, one of the last rock bands that is in that mass market space, they're having big hits. But by 2015, when Franz Ferdinand makes an album with Sparks, are like firmly in that like sort of middle like tier like space well, well, in which but, like Sparks is like, actually comfortable with. Yeah, exactly. But also like the space that Franz Ferdinand occupied when they started their career. The space, frankly, that Sparks occupied when they started their career is maybe exists a little bit in England, but like in America no longer exists. Right. Like in 2015, you don't have like a hot rock band with a huge big straight ahead rock band with like a rock audience and a national hit. You only have cult bands, and maybe they can work their way to national success, but it's a different trajectory. Well, but what's also super interesting about that, I think that it also reflects our struggle when now when we talk about this, these terms like indie band. Like, what does that even fucking mean now? Or what does it even mean to be a cult band? We know that Japanese Breakfast or Snail Mail is not the size of like drake like nowhere even nowhere near it but like those artists are also like making like you know very popular records that are getting like in the top 20 of like year end list so like are they cult are they underground are they indie like what are they and like essentially i think at least in my my understanding is like they are kind of in this sort of like middle ground space in which you're discussing but it also just like it's hard to define like what that space is and it's almost like now like I mean, is that a cult space now? Well, is that an independent space? Like, what is that space now, I, you know? I, I mean, I it's also... It's like kind of where, like, it seems like where most bands and most artists actually exist and, like, which could be considered successful. Well, I mean, yeah. For our, strange. For right? one level, you're saying then, like, about, the like, the fragmentation of the mass market, which is a big story, right? Right, right, right. From, from three right. channels to Netflix. Sure, 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 yeah, yeah. But also, I feel like looking at... From answering that question from the perspective of Sparks... I think maybe gives you a sense about like at one level the artificiality of some of those categories, right? Like totally, Sparks yeah. or is how an LA band often, always changing and like how they're shifting. always changing and shifting and how they're constructed. Like Sparks right. is an LA band, no Sparks is a UK band, no Sparks is a rock band, no Sparks is a new wave band, and like Sparks is a cult band, and right. yeah, and now Sparks is a cult band, and you can position yourself that way. But then like you know you make a record with different set of songwriters i think about like the um the halt like halsey making a record with trent reznor where it was like halsey was a pop star and now halsey's repositioning herself and so i feel like there's this broader thing especially the the, the at one level these these positions have real cultural meaning and another level they are moves on a chessboard and what moves are available to you or not is kind of the whole game and i mean like but let's not forget like and in another sense they're just like terms to market you music yeah <laughs> in the end well we'll tie a bow on that one music by bird language we'll see you in a couple weeks thank you for listening please rate and review yeah.